Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. Our, our scripture reading this morning comes from a, uh, a traditional reading for Palm Sunday, um, and it is from the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke's account. And so as I, as I do the scripture reading, I want you to know uh, that your part will come in. Um, as soon as I get to the place where it says the throng, you will be the throng. Uh, you will join in your voices. Uh, the, the screen will come up and I'll tell you what to say. But let us listen now for uh, God's word for us. Now, as Jesus went to Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, he gave two disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there, and when you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying this? Say, the master needs it. Those who had been sent found it exactly as Jesus said. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, master needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their clothes on the colt and they lifted Jesus on top of it. Then they brought Jesus, I'm sorry. And then as Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. Here comes your part. You ready? As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of the disciples began rejoicing. Okay, Alex, you put that slide up. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things that they had seen. And they said, you ready? Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Well done. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. Jesus answered, and this is the title, this is where the title of our Lenten series comes from. Jesus said, I tell you, if they were silent, then the stones would cry out. If they were silent, then the stones would cry out. There's other versions that say that the rocks would cry out. That's some. Um, that's where we get the title of this Lenten series, where we've been talking about creation and our care of creation, our relationship to creation. Uh, and, and there's kind of a double entendre here, right? So on, on the one hand, you could say that the stones or, or the earth um, have been crying out uh, through all sorts of ways, right? Whether it is um, whole species um, that have been going extinct, um, whether it is through massive storms or, or fires that have ravaged us in the, the recent years, there's a, a way that the Pacific Ocean has kept together a massive plastic floating island of debris, um, or it's just the, the warming, the heating of the earth, the fever that we talked about last week. Creation has been crying out and trying to get our attention, and, and we just need to pay attention and do a better job of being better partners with and learning from all that God can teach us creation. Now, in today's text, it's a different way of thinking about the rocks crying out, right? Jesus is heading into Jerusalem on the back, in the back door, basically, right? And as Kristen said, Pontius Pilate on his war horse was coming in the front gates of Jerusalem. Jesus is riding in on a colt. 
in the back gates. And, um, and as he's coming in, the people start shouting, right? And, and the trees are waving and the branches are waving. And, and, uh, and the religious leaders say to Jesus, um, they scold him. Scold him and they say, tell your followers to quit yelling, to quit making a loud noise, to quit calling out. And Jesus says this, I love it. He says, fine, you can tell them to be quiet. I could tell them to be quiet. But if they are quiet, then the rocks are going to shout out. You can't stop the worship from happening. And if the rocks don't shout out, then, then the, the creatures will shout out and, and the palm branches will wave. See, all of creation is in worship, is in communion with God all of the time. And it, and it just means um, we've got to do a better job of tuning in our ears and, and hearing that. Um, I want to show you another scripture real quick, just from Isaiah 55. And this is how uh, the prophet Isaiah says it. He says, the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. The mountain and hills will burst into song. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isn't that great? If we could just tune our ears, our, our collective ears into that energy, if we take the time to listen and connect with creation, hear and understand that that life is flowing is, is blooming is singing all around us all the time in connection with god it would help us creation can literally lead us and help us to find our way and to worship god every um sunday back here when when the choir is in session um, they have got a, a beautiful sound and one of the ways that our choir uh, maintains their beautiful sound is because obviously they practice great leader and a great organist and wonderful group of people, but we also employ um, section leaders. And what section leaders are, right, we've got altos, we've got bass, and we've got sopranos, and we've got tenors, right? And each one of those sections has a section leader, and a section leader is not supposed to, I mean, on occasion they can sing a solo, but that's really, their, their job is not for their voice to stick out above everyone else. Their, their job is to know the tune, to know the melody, to know the song by heart, and to sing in a way that resonates, that kind of permeates their section, so that if other people, other altos or sopranos or whoever, maybe get off a little bit or, or they lose the tempo, all they have to do is just tune their ear into hearing the section leader, and then they can just quickly join their voice back into the chorus, and it all sounds beautiful again. In the same kind of way, I, I think that nature, right, the, the birds, the rocks, the fields, the trees, they are our section leaders. They, they lead us into worship. And I, I don't know about you, but if you've been on a walk recently, one of the, the kind of eerie um, but beautiful repercussions of this coronavirus and, and the home quarantine is that when I go out on a walk alone or I go for a run or Stacy and I go outside, I, I can hear, I feel like I can hear more birdsong. I feel like I can just kind of hear and sense nature around me in new ways. That is the way the creation always is in concert with God. And, and it's that the rocks and, and the palms and the trees can lead us in worship if we just still ourselves and listen and pay attention. That's what I think happened on this Palm Sunday, right? So, so Jesus is heading into town and, and the branches and the trees start waving. The rocks are crying out. The palm fronds are, are, are keeping beat, right? And, and the people just grabbed a hold of the palm fronds and began swaying them and tapping their feet and joining their voices in the chorus. And a parade took place that was joining the voices of all creation, us included. And God rode into town 
full of it's, it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful way to think about us and our reaction to God and with all of creation and worshiping together. So today is Palm Sunday. Uh, today is also Communion Sunday, as you see the elements in here before me. And it's kind of a cool way to, to finish this series on talking about creation because both with, with Palm Sunday, with the palm branches waving and, and rocks crying out, then on, on that same week, Jesus gathered with his friends and they, and they broke bread and they drank they ate and they feasted together and, and he taught them the commandment that uh, as they eat together, as they share in the goodness and the bounty of creation together, they love each other uh, as they share food together. Um, so it's a wonderful way for us to cap off this, this series, our, our story as followers of God in Christ. He said, begins in a garden. It grew in an agrarian culture that part of our worship was to literally offer the first fruits of our, um, our crops to God and worship as part of, part of our whole story, our narrative as the Hebrew people. And then we know that um, the lessons of our faith were taught at lakesides and in vineyards and in uh, wheat fields. And then this, this sacrament, the main sacrament that Christ put before us to remember him was to, to set out the bounty of the earth at a table and to feast together. Um, Jesus was, was, as we know, uh, resurrected in a garden. Um, and, uh, and then the vision that we have, I just want to close my part with this, this, the vision that we have for the future of ourselves in creation is also centered in, in plants and animals and the healing nature of them. So real quick, Alex, let's show them um, Revelation 22. This is what our future is. This is our future hope. The angel showed me a river of life-giving water, right? Great vision. Shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and through the middle of the city's main street, on each side of the river is a tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. And the tree's leaves are for the healing of the nation. Kind of cool on a, on a Palm Sunday where, where leaves play such a major part to remember that that is our future hope, that the, that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so I thought it would be pretty cool today for us to, to end by um, in this whole series with thinking about creation and, and, and inviting in some people whose uh, literally their livelihoods, their daily livelihoods involve uh, thinking about food, improving ways that we eat and more healthy ways, how we can improve the way we harvest and, and we farm. And so I've invited Christy Sigler to join us. And hi, Christy, those of you who don't know Christy, she is a member of our church. She is an elder. She's married to Eric, but she also um, is an executive who deals with uh, food strategy for uh, global food and agricultural companies. And so it's wonderful to have you with us, uh, Christy, to give your perspective. Hi, hi everyone. Hosanna. Hosanna. Uh, thanks to Johnny's church who did drive-by poems yesterday. Eric and I are set for today and for Easter week. I'm super excited to be here today. As Paul mentioned, like I love food so much. I majored in it and I've spent my <laughs> career talking about food. And I think it's incredibly relevant that we spend our last Sunday in this series talking about plants. Because when we talk about plants, they really bring all of the things that have been part of this sermon series, the soil, the water, the air, the heat and the sunshine, and even animals. All of those come together to make plants come before us. And while modern agriculture has yet to enable that fruiting every month that Paul just talked about in the Revelation passage, 
I do believe that those trees that clap are not just clapping for God. They're also clapping for the farmers that take care of the land. And my appreciation for farmers has grown significantly as part of my career in food. And I just thought, you know, the very first Sunday when Paul was talking about the soil and and we had the composting session and all of the great things that each of us could do in our homes and on our patios and in our backyards, what really struck me sitting, I think one of the last times sitting in a pew and not in my house, yeah. was yeah. that, um, you know, there are amazing people whose livelihood is being stewards of the land and creating the plants that become the food that we eat. So it is my absolute pleasure this morning to introduce to you via technology, my friend, fellow foodie and South Dakota farmer, Charlotte Romerheim. Charlotte is a registered dietitian and she's in private practice. She serves healthcare facilities and senior living facilities around their home in Alcester, South Dakota. Charlotte is also married to Steve and together they have a diversified farming operation which means that they not only uh, farm corn and soybeans, but they also raise 10,000 head of hogs. So we get to hear from some actual farmers this morning? Hear from some actual farmers this morning. All right. You know, it, there was a plan where they might actually come join us, but they too are in uh, sheltering in place on their farm. But they've sent us some video to introduce themselves to us, introduce their faith and how it connects to farming to us, so Alex, if you could cue up the video, it's time to meet Charlotte and Steve. We have lived here 24 years and I lived here as a kid. So the house was built in 1911. Prior to that, there were other houses and then including actually a sod house that was just across the road from this house. Cool. You know, all of us are expected to do the best that we can with what God provides us. And as family farmers, we do the best we can every year for the next year and for the next generation. And we, for our family, that means that it's six generations that we have been doing the best job every year and every season and every generation. Um, a farmer has to be a little bit of an expert in many, many things, a weatherman, a mechanic, an agronomist, an animal scientist, they need to, call on other experts if that means that asking for a veterinarian to help them do a better job to care for their animals or um, an agronomist to do a better job to on the land that they have and as you might imagine with a multi-generational family business uh, at times you call upon the wisdom of the older generation and at times doing the best job means adopting a new technology and becoming a progressive farmer I've watched my grandpa, my dad, my husband, and now my daughter and son-in-law be those innovative farmers that have sought out doing the best job and using new technology to do the best job every year. And we've been blessed <clears throat> to have a family farm that's lasted for many generations. We have done the best that we can and been the best stewards of what God has provided for us. And then we have been blessed to have a family farm for many generations. We, with faith, we do the best we can every year. We have faith that God will provide, that the rain will come, and we have then the joy of providing food to feed the world. 
Hello everyone, my name is Steve Romerheim. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm a farmer from South Dakota and uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about my opinions and my viewpoint of sustainability, which is a uh, well-used keyword right now when it comes to agriculture. And uh, I have raised crops and livestock my entire life. And uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit about our, our family farm. And I'm the fifth generation to farm on this property. And uh, the dirt and the gifts that God had given us through this amazing science uh, is really something. And when it comes to the new keywords around sustainability, um, you know, we've been doing this on this dirt for 146 years, and I have never seen in my lifetime the amount of progress in soil health, in animal health, in everything that we're doing, animal well-being. Um, it, it's just incredible now compared to even 20 years ago, the way we were operating. And that's fifth generation. We're very excited to pass this land in our operation down to our sixth and even our seventh generation as our grandsons are moving into our current farm. And it, it's a very exciting time for me to be able to, to pass this lineage, if you will, this heritage down to another generation. And to me, that is the story of sustainability, to make what we had better and to make what we're doing something that's still uh, acceptable and profitable to the next generation. So I couldn't be more excited about it. And of course, with God's blessings on everything that we do and to be as productive as we are, it is an absolute joy to be able to put food on your plates and everybody else in in America and the rest of the world. Uh, that was fantastic. I hope everybody was able to uh, appreciate a different a different perspective from those who are uh, taking care of our land. And, and when I started this uh, this series, uh, uh, I'm trying to start my video again, but it says that the host stopped me. And so just listen to my voice as I talk. <laughs> the, uh, one of the first Sundays we started this, um, uh, uh, Christy Sigler came up to me afterwards and said, gosh, I kind of wanted to stand up and preach. Uh, and there's so many things I wanted to say. And I said, well, great. We'll find a time for you to say it. But Christy, say a little bit more. Why does this series, what we're talking about with Earth Care, why, why does it move you so much? Sure. So um, it's totally true. I was sitting in the pew and like this, this is my job and this is my passion. And I also feel like there are a lot of misunderstandings. But as we need to take a better care of the earth, like Steve just talked about, to feed more people, this is becoming more important than ever before. And I do think it's appropriate that we're, this is the last conversation because it ties together everything that we've discussed so far, um, in, including you know, some of the conservation and um, sustainability elements that, that Aaron talked about last week. So in that very first sermon series, we heard the passage from Genesis that said, that due to Adam and Eve's sin, the ground was cursed. Yeah. And that really struck me because I think about the ground as being so full of life and that, that I know so many people who are amazing caretakers of it. And I'm part of the, the science that makes all of this um, kind of come to life and, and the technological advancements that help us feed 6 billion people now and are helping us plan to a world that feeds 9 billion people. Yeah. So I thought we could start with a quick question this morning, and you can be brutally honest because I can't see you, um, but how many of you, raise your hand if as part of preparation 
for COVID or in dealing with this pandemic that you have gone to the grocery store and stockpiled your pantry or your refrigerator or your freezer. Yeah, us too. Um, we could absolutely live out of this house for a very long time. And that is due in large part to the advancements that have been made in agriculture and food systems as a whole. And I, you know, I feel like we have a very um, privileged view of what agriculture is. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time today sharing some of the fundamentals of plants with you, um, a little bit about seed science, crop protection, and modern agriculture, not just for us here in Kansas City who are able to go to grocery stores and pick up what we want, but for us to think about these technologies as God's children and taking care of our brothers and sisters all over the world. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so uh, start with a little bit on, on seed science. So seed science is really breeding. Um, I think all of you who've gotten to uh, biology and genetics in high school science will remember uh, breeding and Punit squares and Gregor Mendel, but seed science goes far beyond that. And from my perspective, those seed technologies are actually food science technologies. What's happening now um, when we're breeding new seeds, whether they grow corn and soybeans that are seen in this picture or fruits and vegetables or nuts, um, it's really this balance between what's good for the farmer. So you heard Steve talk about, you know, he's trying to do a better job. So new seeds help plants fight disease. They help plants get the right nutrients out of the soil and they help the plant produce more seeds or, or fruits or vegetables so that we get more yield, which is what the word is here, more output um, out of a single seed. But it also is helping to improve the nutrition for whoever eats that seed. Um, and a lot of times it's us directly, you know, think about what's, what fruits and vegetables are in your refrigerator now, but often it's also an animal that might eat that, um, that food and process it for us. So if we go back and think about our perspective, I wanna kind of turn the lens a little bit and think about the 400 million people globally who have a rice-dependent diet. And sadly- So how much, so give that number again. 400 million. Okay, so that's larger than the population of the United larger, States. Yeah, and, and if you throw in our neighbors in Canada too, it's still bigger than that. So a lot of people are primarily dependent on rice. The challenge with rice is it's an incomplete food. And so it means that these people are chronically deficient in vitamin A, in iron, in uh, iodine and in zinc. And one of the biggest challenges is this vitamin A deficiency because vitamin A deficiencies lead to blindness, um, severe infections, reduced immunity, impaired ability to take oxygen in your blood through your body and can stunt your skeletal growth. And this deficiency alone in these rice dependent cultures is leading to many deaths of young children and chronic diseases that significantly lower their quality of life. And what you see here with this golden rice is through what we call biofortification, so genetic engineering, more beta-carotene, and I promise not to get too food sciencey on you, but think of that golden color you see in a carrot, that's beta-carotene as well, that has been bred into this rice. 
So every kernel has more beta carotene, which is a precursor to vitamin A. So simply by breeding this plant to be healthier for those who can only eat rice, we can solve one of the greatest public health challenges that the globe is dealing with. So seed science really is food science. Um, and when we think about not just these plants, but every plant, we need every seed that goes into the ground to be set up for success. And in order to do that, we use what we call crop protection. And I know many of you, if you have been cleaning out your garage, you probably have found some of this. Um, you use it to get rid of weeds in your yard or to keep bugs off your rose bushes or how you keep those tomato plants on your, on your container gardens, enable those to grow strong. And just like we do, farmers use these to manage pests, to manage weeds, weeds and to enable strong growth. But it's far more than that. By keeping these things away, what we're really enabling to happen is that the nutrition that the plant needs gets to the plant and not to anything else around it. And that enables the plant to grow strong and to produce the right kind and very healthy nuts, seeds, vegetables, fruits that can be harvested and then can travel through the food system to get to your house. And that reduces food waste, which we know is a significant challenge for us as a, not as, as a nation, but as a world at the farm, through the food system, and even in our own houses. And so crop protection really enables us to provide a health, healthy and safe uh, food supply. But I feel like crop protection is probably one of the things in agriculture and food that has the worst reputation. <laughs> and, it, and it shouldn't be. You know what, um, when I, so well, let's, let's go to a tractor to kind of level set how crop protection is, is applied. Okay, so, so when old I think school tractor, we're thinking about tractor, red or green, or right. maybe gold. You know, if you're from a small town, what color your tractor is says a lot about your personal brand. But you probably think big tires, big steering wheel, open air, something you would have seen in a parade. Right. And that is not what that is. So what does a tractor look like today? Looks like this. So um, for those of you who have a mortgage on your house. This tractor probably costs more than that. Um, modern tractor technology is huge. So what you can see in here, maybe, um, this tractor has a GPS system, so it knows exactly where to drive. It's got, uh, in most cases, it has air conditioning and, and a, a serious uh, satellite radio, so you can be entertained. But more importantly, it enables the farmer to be collecting data in 10 by 10 plots of their farm to be able to fertilize and put down crop protection and put down the right seed to maximize growth. So it's collecting soil samples. It's looking at um, weather maps. And if, if you live across the street from your neighbor, you know, when it rains in our house, it doesn't rain in Liberty. Farms can be that large. And so it's, it's understanding that. It looks at historical yield. So computers and what we call precision, precision agriculture pull all of that together and enable farmers to make a significant dent in the amount of crop protection products that they use. And so as we were talking through this, you know, this is one of the numbers that I think would really surprise people. 
because one of the things I hear a lot is that oh, farmers, they just spray it well. Right. Um, people have seen crop duster, planes. They may have seen drones that go out there. But the truth is... And those pesticides, they're, just, they're using them all the time and they're all over all the food. Right? Uh, sadly, Paul, you're incorrect. <laughs> Here's the data. So I'm a scientist. I have to show you some data. So the amount of pesticides has, has dropped by more than 95% since the 1950s. Can we do better? Yes. Do we still need innovation? Yes. But do we need this to enable to grow healthy crops? Yes. So all of those things come together to be able to, for us to, to be a lot smarter. Um, the last thing that I wanted to, to talk about today is the thing that has scared me and, and um, gives me pause when I think about moving forward into the next 20 or 30, 40 years. One of the scariest things that I've seen in the last five years are the maps of where crops will be grown in the years 2050, 2060, and beyond. Because of climate change. Because of climate change. And so I'll give you a, a real life example. So here in Kansas City, up 35 to my home state of Iowa, we're really in what we call the corn belt. And so you'll see a lot of corn and, and soybeans. If you go further west in Kansas on the way to Colorado, you'll see wheat and sorghum. The impact of climate change is going to shift all of that north. So if we don't do anything, and by we I mean we as people, we as farmers like Charlotte and Steve, and we as, as general consumers of uh, the environment we live in don't change anything, by 2050, 2060, the Midwest becomes where we grow rice, cotton, and wheat because it's too hot and too dry to grow corn and soybeans. Our corn and soybeans go north. They sit on that uh, US-Canadian border. That becomes corn and soybeans territory. And what's currently grown and exported, not just to us, but to the world in Southern Canada, which is canola, peas, lentils, and a lot of wheat, goes up into the Canadian territories. So if you think about the need for agriculture innovation, it becomes a math game. So we have 3 billion more people to feed. We have a projected decline in crop yields during, due to climate change. And so we need those technologies to be able to feed ourselves. So one last thing to leave you with, I thought, you know, since you're living out of that stocked pantry, I would almost bet one of the foods that all of you are enjoying with your family these weeks are tacos. It's one of America's favorite food. And to be honest, it's a perfect example to talk about how plants play such a key role in our diet. So if you look at this picture, it's probably obvious that onions and cilantro and tomatoes are plants and things that come from the ground. But everything in this picture ties back directly to plants. So whether you like a corner of a flour tortilla, that is a grain that's been ground and further processed, and it's into a tortilla that's then fried in an oil. That oil comes from another plant. And then that tortilla is filled with some kind of protein. Could be beef, um, a chicken, turkey, uh, pork, even fish. Those animals eat plants. And then what is a taco without cheese and sour cream? And those come from dairy. Okay. Yeah, not good is the correct answer. They come from dairy cattle that also eat plants. 
So as, as you go back to your pantry and your stockpiled fridge today and put together lunch for your family, or even as we as a congregation in the next few minutes celebrate communion, I just ask you to think about all the amazing farmers of all sizes and all types that help grow crops for us to be able to enjoy the food that, that nourishes us and, and enables us to be good servants for Christ. So the, the um, buying local is still a good thing. Having a, having a garden in your backyard is still the right thing to do to try to simplify and do what you can. But I think the, uh, the other thing that we want to just remember is that the, the way that uh, we do exist together on a planet and in a lot of places where people can't grow crops or, yeah, like we've got very limited um, ability to, to the grocery store or whatever, right. we've got to be thankful for the, the technological advances and even the genetic engineering that has allowed for us to kind of get back to that or move forward to that that uh, that vision and, and revelation where there's there's crops that are growing all the time and then people are fed and it's for the healing of the nations. And so it's maybe a, a little bit of an upside down way for us, maybe more kind of urban minded, progressive <laughs> people to think about um, we sometimes want to throw large farms under the bus but but um, we need to recognize that all of us are in this together and it takes the small farms and the, and the, and the local grocery stores but also uh, the larger farms and farmers who do care deeply about the earth to be able to feed this planet and to uh, make sure that everybody has enough so Christy thank you Charlotte and Steve thank you um, may we all look forward to uh, days ahead where we can be better to our planet and live in more sustainable ways and continue to be blessed by the plants, the palms, the potatoes, the corn that <laughs> feed us uh, every day. Yeah. Um, amen. 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 If you uh, are looking for ways to stay connected to creation, connected to each other, make sure that you've got your ears tuned so you hear the worship of God and all that you do this week. I just want to point out a couple of things, ways for you to get involved. And so, Alex, I'm going to have you share a couple of slides. There's things that are going to be going on, groups that you could be a part of here at Second that we would love for you to um, to connect with and, and to uh, to avail yourselves of. We have got, uh, of course, the week is Holy Week, and you can celebrate that at home. We're going to be sending out some reflections and things that you can do every day as a family or as children. And so I invite you to take a look at that. And if you need that, let us know. We can send it to you in various ways. Um, and then we've also got, uh, of course, our, our regular small groups that are that are going on, and, and um, we've got, of course, Thursday will be uh, Monday Thursday. Uh, we'll be sending out some information about how you can gather around table um, this, this Thursday to celebrate that feast of love. Uh, and then on um, Friday there will be the um, Stations of the Cross that we're going to send out that you can do at your house uh, and walk with Christ through His last day of life. And then, of course, we'll gather together on, on Easter uh, Sunday. All of this is, uh, is made possible through your gifts and your offerings. And we thank you for the ways that you have continued to give. Uh, and uh, you could do that through, through texting or, or just giving online, going to our website. You can certainly just mail a check. We are gathering mail a few times a week. Second. And, uh, and for those who have been benefited by, I want you to know some of our staff who have not been able to uh, necessarily get here who, or who can't work whether it's custodians or nursery care workers that we've continued to pay them you've continued to pay them and we thank you for that and they're very thankful for that we've been able to help out with some emergency assistance with folks with, with medication and groceries so 
thank you for your continued gifts that allow us to worship like this virtually and allow us to care for each other, to stay connected with, our, with each other, with creation, and to uh, take care of, uh, of everybody, um, the blessings that are ours. Um, so with that, uh, I think we are um, we're going to move into communion. All right. Anyone else going to join us? We've got a few other folks who are still around. Um, just just a, a little bit of, of, of background for everybody. I did not. I grew up pretty much a city kid. My dad grew up on a farm. Um, my mom was a city kid, too. But um, I think if all of us go back at, uh, not too far, we um, were related to and connected with farmers and, and the land uh, and uh, probably had a, a better deeper understanding of that. Geneva, did, what was your family's story? Um, yeah, so I grew up on a farm. I have family that raised corn and cattle in Illinois. Um, and they, it's a smaller beef, um, cattle for beef, to be clear. And um, it's a smaller company. All of the meat stays in the state. And um, the corn is more grown for cattle feed. Gotcha. Okay. Kristen, did you grow up in a farm family at all? I didn't. My parents had a nursery center growing up, so a garden center, but it was not okay. agricultural. But I grew up in a rural area, so there were lots of farms all around us. And the smell of manure as I rode the bus to school. And yeah, so I can relate to it, but not in my family. Yeah. That smell still makes me nostalgic. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> That's one way to describe it. Yeah. So, Christy Sigler, how did you um, find your way into being like a, a, a food expert and executive? <laughs> so, I think as part of the family business, um, my both my grand, grandparents on both sides farmed. My dad grew up on a farm and actually started his career teaching what is rare these days, but uh, vocational agriculture before he okay. went into administration. And my mom started her career as a county home economist, working with 4-Hers and helping families learn how to cook and do meal planning. And then she taught home ec for many years. Um, and I started as a chemistry major and took a nutrition class. Um, and I started to see how the two parts came together. So the science of food and my passion for science just kind of turned into uh, majoring in food science, which I know a lot of people don't know what that is. Most of the land grant schools offer that as a major, and it's really working, and it's evolved a lot since I've been in school, but it's really focusing on the production of food, whether it's new product innovation, food safety, plant production, but not plant animals, but plant food plants that make food, packaging, as well as now, a really big focus on global food systems. Um, and you know, one of the challenges of this industry is as we become more global in nature, um, food is very much one of the things that um, we're dealing with. And yes, we are challenged in this COVID environment to be able to have food we need, but it's fascinating to watch globally as in Europe where they have a different border structure, you know, what they can and can't get from each other. Yeah. And there's a lot of food that's sitting in container ships on the way to Asia and coming from Asia. So, you know, one of the things that's really impacting our business, like business meeting, the industry as a whole, is what does the food industry, food and therefore agriculture, what do these industries look like, you know, as we come out of this pandemic? 
Yeah, I think the thing that was interesting in, in talking with you this, this last couple of weeks, Christy, is, is uh, again, I'm, I'm kind of a city kid and, and uh, have grown up with some sensibilities, even though I'm not that far removed from the farm. And, and I think in my mind, uh, the, the thought of the large scale farms um, that have grown and grown and become uh, more um, kind of complex and, and advanced, you know, the things that you were saying about uh, genetically modified foods, you know, that's kind of a, a swear word in a lot of circles. And yet, recognizing that if we didn't do that, well, the well, fact is we already do that. We've been doing that for hundreds of years uh, since monks started splicing things together. Right. Uh, so we're all, we all, and we benefit that and and clearly it allows for some people to be nourished in ways that they couldn't and so the miraculous nature behind that as well as recognizing that we as the united states again my privileged point of view thinking about how we care for ourselves the united states feeds a lot of the world and, and to recognize if we didn't do that if we didn't apply some of these technologies there would be parts of the world that, that really wouldn't wouldn't have the food you know able so to recognize our responsibility in that and how do we do that in a way that is generous and gracious but also uh, helpful and, and good to the earth and sustainable. And so it's a challenge, but um, I think I've grown just in this last week in talking to you and my appreciation for and respect for farmers, large scale farmers and the work they're doing to, to the both and. So yeah, we need the local stuff. We need to take care of the earth. We also need to continue to produce food if we're gonna feed seven, eight billion people. Um, we don't want people going hungry. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. So where do you see today um, kind of the coolest, like if we were looking out, say, 10 or 15 years, hopefully we continue to grow in our decrease in use of pesticides and we continue to do a better job of caring for our soil and our animals. And, but what, what is out there kind of on the edge that you're seeing that might be the next kind of step in us being better and healthier? Sure, sure. And I won't talk to climate change because I am not a climate change expert. I definitely feel the impact of that is going to have a, a ripple effect through food and agriculture production. You know, we can't fathom what it will look like. Um, Aaron showed last week those maps. I think it was Aaron. Someone showed the maps of you know what the world looks like as we kind of peeled back our use of, of pollution. I don't know where it will land. I, I would love to think that it will make people more aware of the role of how their everyday life is not just impacting the cities they live, but collectively our, our, our world from an agriculture perspective. Um, I also am not an expert in this. I believe the geopolitical situation also has a significant role to play. Um, I am not a food policy expert. I am not an ag policy expert, but that really plays a, a critical role in um, what is grown and how food is distributed, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. Um, and then from a, a plant perspective, you know, um, I really do appreciate that the conversation on genetic modification and genetic engineering. Um, I can pull up one slide. For your um, uh, happy hour, virtual happy hour, here's something funny for you to share this week. Um, one of the things I, I feel that people think genetic engineering, genetic modification was created in the last, you know, several years. And, and the truth is it's been around forever. Um, here's a little slide showing how some of your um, favorite foods are actually related. So if you take what was a wild mustard plant, and some of these happened over centuries through um, mother nature and, and natural modification, you can see how several vegetables, some of which might be actually in your refrigerator today are actually related. 
So um, it's, it enables us to create new and different things. Um, there are new technologies that are being researched right now. Um, you may hear in, um, in, depending on what you follow, um, CRISPR, which I want, it, it's a very long acronym for a different kind of um, genetic engineering, is coming up both through the healthcare side um, because it involves your own, the genes of that element, whether it's the plant or the person. On the healthcare side, they're exploring how it can be used to um, help solve chronic public health issues um, like diabetes and certain types of cancers. Yeah. It also can solve um, different um, food issues. And so this, I thought, like this is the most basic way to think about um, genetic modification by just using words and sentence structure. So homeschoolers who have been teaching kids uh, English this week, this is a good way of looking at, you know, what we're trying to do from a genetic point of view. And that's just either delete something that's causing an issue to edit it, to enable for it to do something better or more, or to replace it with something from somewhere else. And CRISPR has a lot of uh, uh, potential. I won't say advantages because it's not an approved technology yet. This is just, as you can see, again, looking at that balance between farmer and consumer, this enables um, plants to grow in different places and to be able to manage disease better and therefore have higher yield. But then CRISPR also has possibilities when it comes to um, the availability and some of the health um, issues that, um, that we deal with from a food perspective. So I think that's, that's really one. And then to be honest, I think um, COVID is going to have a very long impact on our food chain. Um, I think we're naive to think that when we're allowed to, you know, come forth out of our homes that everything will immediately come back to the way that it is. The shift between restaurants or the food service industry and yes. retail is really rippling, not just from a food supply now, but also up to food production. Um, so for example, the Dairy Farmers of America this morning, they have had to issue guidance that uh, farmers start dumping milk because there isn't the food chain to be able to get it to us. Huh. The distributors, so if you drive around and you see a Cisco or a US Foods truck, those are restaurant suppliers. They've wow. closed because most restaurants have closed. So we have to restart a lot of those um, elements of our business. So whether it's climate change or technology um, and to be honest, go to go all the way back to Charlotte and Steve. Um, farming is not a, a very um, desirable field. The average age of the US farmer is 58 and not getting younger. Um, you know, a lot of young people who grow up on the farm, like, like Geneva and, and me, you know, choose to <laughs> a more metro area and take a different career path. And yeah, so, the, the family farm that I grew up on ended up being sold um, several years ago because there wasn't anyone that wanted um, to take it. Yeah. So now it's cornfields um, for someone else, which is kind of a weird thing when you drive past it. Um, so it's definitely most of my friends in my age just didn't want to take that journey for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, they don't get a day off. You know, when COVID came, they're sheltering in place, but their job really hasn't changed. They're still feeding animals and preparing to plant seeds in the ground. 
and you know that's it's 24 7. you know charlotte mentioned you're a weatherman and a soil scientist and a veterinarian and a mechanic all wrapped into one i mean agriculture and food are stem at their best um, so there's going to be a need for very talented and passionate people to go into the food and agricultural fields in the next yeah. decade. Yeah. And, and moral people. Yeah. Good, good people. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's hard. I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you had more time and could talk to me personally or Charlotte or Steve, it's, it's difficult. Um, you know, people have very it, personally informed and personal passions about the food system. And we're fortunate here in the states that we can enable choice. Um, you know, if you choose to follow a certain diet pattern, if you choose right. to um, shop at a certain type of store, we can we can do that. Um, there are a lot of people that can't, and so um, you know, you, it's a constant, I guess, internal battle. Um, but you know, I look at my opportunity is to help feed more people healthier food help people make informed choices that they feel is a good fit for who they are as a person and, and their values. And that's, that's what I can do. Thank you for doing that, Christy. Thank you for taking for um, your profession as a, as a calling and for uh, doing what you can to, to spread your understanding of, uh, of, of God's love and good care for people and for creation through through the work that you do. So thank thank you for being an advocate for all of that. Hey, hey Paul, can I show one more slide? I suppose, yeah. A little and I don't know if, I don't know if Kristen or uh, Geneva, either one of you are following Facebook Live, but also if, if and just in case there was anyone who had posted something had a question that they wanted uh, to 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 address, we could throw that at her before we close. Oh, sorry. I'll go to the there we go. So a client of mine sent this to me this week. So um, you know, this is really kind of a smash <laughs> and a mismatch of, you know, what it's like to be a, a Christian and, you know, and work in the food industry. I mean, you can imagine that this would be what it would be like. So how do we go back to what really matters to us and how do we make sure that anyone at any table has nutritious food and uses that food to build traditions and to connect with their friends and family? Yeah. And Peter looks like he's taking a selfie there on the selfie stick. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, any, any other any other questions anybody seeing? I'm not seeing any questions, but okay. thank you so much for sharing. It's been really interesting to hear about your story and kind of the farmers you work with. And I'm just amazed at kind of your expertise and again, kind of that vocational calling, how you've been able to take something you love and do good for not just the people and the clients you work with, but just for humanity and for the world. So thanks for the work you're doing. You're welcome. Happy Easter, everybody. We miss you. Happy Easter. We miss you too.